Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. I'm Kyle Rizdahl. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday. 7 November is the date. One show, one topic. The topic du jour is climate solutions, our continuing series. Today, carbon capture. Right. Carbon capture is often touted as this potential way to address the climate crisis by basically sucking the carbon in the air and storing it underground. And the Biden administration recently put over a billion dollars towards carbon capture projects. So what we want to know is how this tech actually works and whether it is a real viable solution. So here to make us smart about this is Nick Kuznets, a staff writer at Inside Climate News. Welcome to the show. Hi, uh, thank you for having me. So first off, um, describe carbon capture and how it actually works, please. Sure. Uh, So there are two kind of overlapping fields here. One is traditionally called carbon capture, and that's about taking carbon dioxide out of smokestack pollution. Then the other is a somewhat newer field called carbon removal, and that's looking at pulling carbon dioxide straight out of the atmosphere. Um, So that carbon removal, there's a whole host of ways you can do that, including planting trees. Um, But some of them are using some of the same technologies as carbon capture. And so for both of those, it's about isolating carbon dioxide, CO2, and then uh, compressing that gas and eventually pumping it underground for storage. Like straight into the ground, like dirt and rock and stuff? That's the idea. I mean, it goes into geological formations that are porous, so that have some kind of space for it. In some cases, these are really similar or even the same places where we're pulling oil and gas out of it. Uh, In others, it's essentially like saline saltwater that's deep down under the earth and, and could theoretically uh, hold a lot of this gas. Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to be an alarmist here, but is there no opportunity for peril there? Injecting stuff into the earth? There absolutely is, and that's one of the big fears. Okay. Um, I mean, there, there, this has been done for a number of decades at a relatively small scale. Um, so in some cases, oil and gas companies have actually used CO2 to help pump oil out of the ground, right, right when, the, when the pressure is low. And a lot of that CO2 ends up staying down underground. There's other cases where... Um, Companies have pumped it into other formations under there and kind of monitored it, monitored it and uh, found that it was stable. But the real um, concern is what happens when this is done at a bigger scale, mm-hmm. because there are a lot of things that can happen. Yeah. Um, there are cracks. Uh, it can leak through wells. It can leak through old oil and gas wells. And um, no one really knows, you know, where those points will be when this reaches a bigger scale. Gotcha. And and what happens when it leaks? I'm, I'm just not familiar with what happens when you have compressed CO2 in like the nooks and crannies and crevices of rocks underground. Sure. Well, even before it leaks, another risk is earthquakes. Um, like we've oh, seen. Oh, is that with... all? <laughs> That's right. You know, this has happened a lot, um, particularly in like Texas, Oklahoma, where Um, oil companies have been injecting wastewater underground, the water that comes up with the oil that they're producing. And when they're increasing the pressures uh, in areas that have faults, in many cases, they've been inducing a lot of earthquakes. You know, parts of Texas and Oklahoma have seen unprecedented levels of earthquakes. So there's a similar risk potentially uh, with CO2, you know, if it's not done properly and in the right places. Um, But then with leaks, 
CO2, there's a, there's a localized problem, which is that carbon dioxide is an asphyxiant, right? So there's a very Jesus. low level of it in air. <laughs> Sorry, this just, this just keeps getting <laughs> so, worse. So, Jimmy, stay away from the well. Right? You might suffocate from the CO2 <laughs> leaking out. Well, so I mentioned that this has been used, and yeah. there's an example in Wyoming where a company was injecting CO2 into an old oil field, and... Um, they hadn't properly mapped all the old wells that were there. And there was an old oil well right next to a school. The CO2 started leaking out wow. and it was reaching dangerous levels. No one was hurt in that case, um, but they had to evacuate the school and the kids had to go somewhere else for, for months at a time while they fixed the problem. I mean, another issue is not with injection, but with piping, right? So this, the CO2 has to get to the places where it's going to be put underground and here is where there has been a more dangerous incident. A couple of years ago, there was a CO2 pipeline uh, that ruptured and leaked and ended up sending dozens of people to the hospital um, because it was, yeah, displacing the air. Wow. Okay. So, um, first of all, I'm so glad we're doing this episode because I had always figured the carbon capture and and uh, the rest was was all sort of benign, but clearly not. But... Uh, so we're, we're trading planetary existential, uh, threat for localized sort of individual human threat. So, so we're going to figure out how to price tag that at the policy level, I suppose. Kimberly said in the introduction, the Biden administration wants to spend a billion dollars. Is a billion dollars enough? Well, it's actually a lot more than a billion. The okay. infrastructure bill has put about 12 billion and actually okay. a little bit more than that towards carbon capture and removal. Um, but then the Inflation Reduction Act, which was the Biden administration's signature climate bill from last year, that increased the value of a tax credit, um, which is it's a production tax credit. So there's no way to know exactly how much it's going to be because it depends on how much people use it, how much mm. carbon dioxide they capture. But that could be worth many billions of dollars, potentially tens or even more, depending on, on how much it's done. And mm. whether it's enough, I mean, I think that it's a very expensive technology, and its supporters have said that what's been missing is meaningful government support. I think certainly the government has now started to give that meaningful support, um, but no one thinks that the public spending on its own is enough. So it really has to spur the private sector to spend a lot more money than that. Right. I've also seen, you know, on social media and things, uh, people who use carbon capture and, and turn it into like physical goods like bricks or, you know, plastics or, 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 or something like that. Is that a real part of this system or is that just too niche to matter? I, it is niche, uh, certainly for now. I mean, I think one of the big appeals there is, you know, there is this question of economics. It's expensive to do this. There's no price on carbon, so there's no price to pay for polluting currently. And, uh, so why would a company spend the money to do this, right? And if you can create some kind of a product, that helps with the economics. Uh, there are some companies looking into using carbon dioxide uh, and injecting it into cement, for example, um, or producing like physical bricks that you could use to build. Um, but I think n nothing in that space is really at the scale that would be needed or, or really close. I think when it when people talk about doing this at, at a real meaningful scale, it's mostly about storing it underground. Do you suppose it's possible that, and look, fossil fuels are going to be here for a, a very long time. That's just the way the global economy is set up, as much as we all want to try EVs and, and all the rest of this stuff. But is it possible that 
what's happening here is an investment in carbon capture by not necessarily governments, but others uh, to let us stay reliant on fossil fuels longer? Right. That's the one of the big fears, right? Um, their carbon capture can be used for a lot of different things. And, and some of those don't directly relate to fossil fuels, like producing cement, for example, releases uh, a lot of CO2. And so a lot of people think it can be used there. Um, but oil and gas companies right now are um, saying that we can make clean hydrogen, which could be a, a kind of clean burning fuel, um, and, and do it using carbon capture uh, to take away the emissions that are current released when you make the fuel with natural gas. So that's one example. There are also a lot of utilities looking to put carbon capture on coal or gas-burning power plants. Um, so, I mean, the promise is that this can be another tool, right? When we need kind of every tool we can get. But I think the risk is that um, the technology hasn't been used at, at a meaningful scale yet. It hasn't been tested at that level. And if it, if we do end up counting on it, we do put it onto that coal plant or gas plant or a hydrogen plant, and it doesn't work as planned, then what happens, you know, we end up polluting more than we might otherwise if we had just shut that down instead. So then... Where do you think it fits in the mix in terms of how much we should be putting into carbon capture as a strategy versus some of the other climate solutions? Well, there's a this is a huge debate over this right now, right? And um, the short answer is no one really knows. Um, I think there are a lot of people who think that uh, who argue that we 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 could need this for certain niche sectors, like I mentioned again, cement perhaps, or for steel. You know, there are a lot, of, a lot of things that we're ready to do at this point to replace coal and gas power plants with wind and solar, for example. Some others we don't really have good solutions for yet, or if we have them, they're extremely expensive. And uh, that's a lot of like heavy industry um, making iron and steel, cement. And so the hope is that maybe carbon capture can play a role there, but it really is a maybe at this point. So I think that some of the best arguments for it are to pursue research and, and kind of models of how this could look uh, if it does work out and if we do need it. Um, but the fear is that we will overspend and essentially direct new subsidies to the fossil fuel industry uh, to a technology that might not work out. Whew. Lots of uh, food for thought there. Um, yeah, it's a bit of a doozy. It is. It is. Uh, thank you, Nick Kuznets. He's a staff writer at Inside Climate News. Uh, definitely given us a lot to think about. Thank you. All right. Thanks for having me. Nick, thanks a bunch. Yeah, I had no idea. I had no idea. I Neither thought we just kind of put it in the ground and everything was fine. But no, earthquakes and asphyxiation. And look, I understand you got you to gotta, you gotta do everything you can. But oh, my. You know, I feel like this is becoming a trend with the series in that there's this thing, the solution that on its face, it's like, oh, great idea. That will, here's another tool in the toolbox. And it's like, yeah, it's a tool in the toolbox that also has like a spike on it. So don't hold it too tight, you know? Yeah, no, and, totally, totally. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. And so it's, but at the same time, you know, the alternatives are worse. And so... This is a complicated topic and no easy answers, but 
it's I'm, I'm glad that there is so much research happening in all of these different fields and maybe we'll be able to find ways to make these solutions uh, a little less risky down the road with this investment. Here's open. Here's open. Yeah. Anyway, what do you all think about carbon capture based on what you uh, heard today or what you might know yourself? Um, do you think it should be a climate solution? You can let us know at 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. And also, if you want to hear more about climate solutions, please make sure to check out How We Survive, which is Marketplace's climate podcast hosted by Amy Scott and this latest season is all about water in the West. It's super interesting, so you should definitely have a listen. We will be right back. All right, we're back. News, Kimberly Adams, you get to go first. So two uh, different but related stories. So the there was an update today about the SAG-AFTRA strikes that are ongoing, even though the movie theater uh, organization said they'd given their best and final offer. SAG-AFTRA is still kind of like, mm, no thanks. And according to reporting at The Verge, this is because of the desire of studios to own performers digitally scanned likeness in perpetuity. I'm, I'm reading here, actually, in The Verge that comes via The Hollywood Reporter. The AMT, AMPTP's newest contract would allow studios to secure the digitally scanned likenesses of all Schedule F performers, members of the Guild, making more than the minimum $32,000 per episode rate for a series or more than $60,000 for feature films. So these are basically the big stars, right? This idea that you they would be able to take your image and, and your likeness and scan it in and, and use it. And some of the concerns here are that, you know, the studios could then use AI to, you know, recreate dead performers without checking in with their estates or, you know, do whatever else. And so this is still a sticking point in these negotiations, which, um, you know, this tied to another story I saw today in Reuters about OpenAI um, creating the opportunity, uh, I'm just going to read here, OpenAI unveiled a marketplace on Monday that enables users to access personalized artificial intelligence apps for tasks like teaching math or designing stickers, signaling an ambition to expand its consumer business. Hmm. And, you know, these 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 it would go into a store, which will launch later this month, where people can share their own GPTs and earn money based on the number of users. It's a renewed effort from the company's failed attempt to build an ecosystem of chat GPT plugins earlier this year. And we said this months ago and uh, lots of people did, but just how pervasive generative AI is going to become in society so quickly, right? Mm -hmm. And SAG-AFTRA is clearly seeing the writing on the wall of of the direction that we're heading. And once again, disclaimer that Marketplace, uh, you know, editorial staff is in a different section of SAG-AFTRA. But, you know, seeing that this is coming and then just looking at the consumer rollout they want of, of open, AI, open AI trying to get more people using AI on a day-to-day basis for more things, it's going to be so fascinating to look back a year from now at this, these past few months and how much 
our world changed right underneath us. Yeah, forget five or ten years, but yeah. a year, right? Yeah, yeah just totally. a year. Totally. Um, my last little bit of news is just a check-in, which is that um, another story from Reuters that the Repu- Republicans are expecting no votes on a stopgap uh, continuing resolution this week as a shutdown looms. We are 10 days away p- from a potential additional partial government shutdown, um, even though lots of sections of the government have found ways to maneuver around the worst of this. But it's a shorter week. We have... Um, Veterans Day uh, observance on Friday, and then they're just not doing that much as well. So next week's going to be interesting. Yeah, I think the they're not doing as much uh, part is more important than, <laughs> than the federal <laughs> holiday on Friday, I'm just saying. Yes, for sure. For sure. Yes. Uh, so one of my definitions for news is stuff that makes you go, huh. And mm-hmm. I was scanning Bloomberg this morning, and I saw this item, and I said, huh. The Bloomberg Billionaires Index is out. Honestly, this is not like breaking news. It's not relevant news. It's just kind of like, huh, news. Um, Donald Trump's net worth has increased $500 million uh, since he left (laughs) office. Of course it has. I I looked at it and I was like, huh. Turns out that uh, his uh, holdings in the state of Florida, Mar-a-Lago and uh, the Drow Country Club, uh, a growth in the value of those is what has driven his um, personal um, value higher. Although probably not as high as he's talking about in his trial in New York over the valuation of his properties. Just pointing that out. That's it. That's what we got. I can't wait until at some point we get the real data about how much of the money going to his campaign is just being straight funneled into his legal expenses and other things related to not the presidential campaign. Very much of it. He could fairly argue that his legal defense is part of his campaign because he's using it to amplify his campaign. Mm -hmm. And, you know, his argument the whole time is that a lot of these legal cases are to keep him from office. Um, and And I have to imagine at some point. There's if there hasn't been already, there's going to be a lawsuit or some oh, sort yeah. of uh, investigation about how this money is going from donors into his legal defense. Oh yeah, but, Guar- guaranteed lawsuit, guaranteed lawsuit. Yeah, yeah. All right, especially if he loses. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. So last week, as part of our Climate Solutions series, we talked about clean hydrogen, and we wanted to hear from listeners who've driven a hydrogen-powered car. Andrea in California called in to tell us about it. In 2018, we leased a Honda Clarity. Where I live, the nearest fueling station at the time was about 15 miles from home on the drive to work. Hmm. Refueling was relatively simple. If all went well, it only took about 10 minutes. It wasn't always perfect. Sometimes stations would be down for service or out of fuel or just powered down. In the end, we returned the car in 2021 after three years and 45,000 miles, thinking it was an interesting experiment. That's totally fascinating. First of all, good for them for trying. And I totally get uh, why you gave it back because it can be frustrating. But uh, that's cool. That's good to know. Yeah. Super interesting. 
Uh, one, one more. I was talking the other day about my disdain for hotel showers, that thing where they only do like half a door, first of all, but also the ones where you have to stick your hand through what will be the water flow to turn on the water, and it's inevitably cold. Come on, you guys. And we got this. This is Michael from Grand Rapids, Michigan. As a traveling sales guy in the contract furniture space, I've been in hotels all over this country and cannot stand the design of so many of these hotels. Amen. So much so that during COVID, like everyone, when I renovated my house and and made a half bath in my basement a full bath, I constructed the shower with the shower head on the south wall and the hot cold knob on the northeast corner so you're not going to get splashed right. by the cold water it's, when you turn it on. It's not hard. Good for it's you, It's not Michael. hard, hotel well designers. Well done, sir. Whoever's well running done, Marriott sir. and Hyatt and Holiday Inn and all of them, come on, man. Do better. Do, do better. Yes. All right. Before we go, we're going to leave you with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is, what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Logan, memoing in from Savoy, Illinois. I used to think that science would be able to provide a solution to climate change. After looking at the numbers, I still believe that science will play an important role in addressing the climate crisis. But for every scientific solution, there are myriad cultural or social solutions that provide equivalent or greater benefit. I'm happy to play a scientific role in addressing the climate crisis, but I have a newfound respect for activists and individuals that currently are and have been fighting for the necessary social and infrastructure changes that will push us towards a truly sustainable future. Such a good point. That reminds me of the other day when we were talking, and I had that clip from a guy who said that we needed to change our clothes shopping habits Mm -hmm. from buying 55 pieces a year to five pieces Mm -hmm. a year. Um, You know, things like the length of our showers and just small... And and yes, it's not on us individually to to fix these problems, but you know, it is. It does take so much and everything and all the things, all the things. And just like there's no one scientific solution, as we saw with carbon capture, hello, earthquakes association, Oof. right? Uh, yes. There is. It's going. There is no single solution, broadly speaking, right? It's going to take everybody doing everything, you know. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we want to hear your answer to the Make Me Smart question. Uh, our number is 508-827-6278, 508-U-B-S-M-A-R-T. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Today's program was engineered by Juan Carlos Torado with mixing by Jay Siebold. Our intern is Neela Farshavandi. Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. She decided to come in today. She's sitting there on the other side of the glass, kind of shrinking down, though, Mm. so I can't see her. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. Marketplace vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. 